you can go ahead and take a seat. And our young friends are invited back to the kids' table with, um, with Olivia and friends, with Miss Olivia and friends, lots of excitement there. And they're going to be learning at their, on their own level some of the things that we're talking about today, which, which is awesome. And just a note, too, we have an awesome children's ministry here at Table Life Church, and we celebrate children, whether in worship or in their own study. And, um, and we've decided to make a little bit of a change, so the children will not be re-entering for the communion time. They'll be picked up after the service. And once again, that's intended just for them to have some more of their own time, and really, um, they'll be celebrating the table also together as a group. So um, just welcome, everybody. Um, Great to be back with you. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. If you're new here, if you're online with us, maybe the first time or first time in a long time, whatever that might be, just welcome. We're glad that you're here and know that you belong here. That's kind of our little tagline here at Table Life, um, is that you belong here, that regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, that you know you can find a home here seasoned Christian or uh, skeptic, um, the whole range, you are welcome here. And, um, and I had a little couple travels these last two weeks. I have to say, Dorothy had it right, like there's no place like home. Seriously, it's good to be back, and um, I get these little opportunities to share a little bit of the kingdom work that God's doing here at Table Life, but also help some other churches, too, to think outside the box and reach out in their community, ranging from the cold, bitter Minnesota that I was in last weekend to um, yesterday was in Tampa, Florida, and it was like 90 degrees. So, um, yeah, once again, good to be home. Um, But we're in this series that is um, called The Bible And um, Pastor Gary uh, preached a message as a guest preacher last week, um, which I thought was really awesome. If you didn't hear that, make sure you tune in about um, the ending of one of the Gospels. And and we've been talking these last few weeks about the Bible and trying to make it not so scary, Um, trying to make it help make sense of some things, but also even more importantly, to give you some tools on how to understand and interpret scripture. And the way we've been doing that is by bringing up some questions and passages that um, can sometimes be confusing or there can be different views or or that kind of thing that's going on. And we've talked about how the Bible itself is a very powerful book. It's a very powerful book. Um, It has the power to change lives. I don't know about you, but my life has been transformed by reading scripture, um, getting to know Jesus, getting to know and grow in him. Um, And and scripture, uh, the Bible gives us meaning and purpose and often direction as well. That we believe that this is a living book. It's not just something you read once and one and done and put it back on the shelf, but that continues to speak to us today, just as when it was originally penned, when these different texts and documents and letters were all originally written, they spoke to a people back then, but they continue to speak now. And that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But we've also mentioned, too, that the Bible has, and we acknowledge that the Bible has power for the bad things, too. That over the course of history, um, it's been used to justify lots of isms throughout history, lots of division throughout history, even killing people out of in, in, in history. You know, imagine that, right? Like Christians can be divided. Imagine that. But um, and I say that, I say that tongue in cheek. But but the thing is, the, the Bible and the people that, that use it in a destructive way, um, and and sometimes even just interpret it in, in different ways, sometimes the Bible gets put at the center of controversy. 
at the center of controversy, of interpretation. And sometimes it can be at the center of a great debate. And, and the creation story is an example of that. That's what we're going to be talking about today, the beginning of Genesis, um, and really about how this problem arose between faith and science. This, this idea, um, we look at the discussion around the creation story in Christianity, look through history, and we see over the years, um, it's clear that there's a lot of ways the conversation has really gotten messed up. It's really gotten messed up. You know, for example, over the, the several centuries, many Christians have treated the topic of creation as basically the theological hill to die on. That if you don't embrace that, then you must throw out everything, that you must doubt all of Scripture. Um, and and that, that, that's the thing. Many times people have thought it's the job of Christians to fight scientists and to make them the enemy. And having been one and trained as one, I find that offensive. <laughs> uh, but that's the thing. That's what people have done over the years. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Christians have historically become divided where these things should have been merely topics of disagreement, of interpretation. And that's the thing. The creation story itself, creation overall, um, it, there's, it's not mentioned or found in any of the creeds of Christianity as a core belief. Um, there's no specific interpretation of exactly what it means that's, that's promoted in any of the ancient creeds that Christians would say. Um, and, and I think my, my buddy John Wesley uh, you know, the, the kind of the forefather of, of our denomination and kind of our slice of the pie. Um, he put it in a really, really good way. Um, I'm not going to try to make this up. I'm just going to quote him. But he divided kind of Christian belief into essentials and non-essentials. The essentials being the core things of Orthodox Christianity that are found in the creeds. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven, maker of heaven and earth, once again, not, not in a descriptive way, and talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and his resurrection. But then there's kind of this outer branch in this kind of diagram of non-essentials. And let me just say this, non-essential does not mean not important. It just means it's not essential to the faith. And there may be debate, there may be different interpretation. Um, there, there's a famous quote by Wesley um, that said this, if you want to put that up on the screen there, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, charity. And maybe we should treat each other a little bit better about some of the non-essential issues and some of the things that we may be divided on instead of fighting to the tooth and nail, right? Making the scientists the enemy and ostracizing people. Um, I kind of think of it a little bit like one of my favorite ice cream bars, the, can the Candy Center Crunch Bar. I don't know if anybody has a favorite, but the Candy Center Crunch Bar um, has this chocolate center. I don't know if you're a chocolate fan, but it has this like hard chocolate center, but then it has the nice rich ice cream around it, right? I mean, what if we were a little bit acted more like, like the, the Crunch Bar, the Candy Crunch Bar, that we would be people with the hard center, but soft edges. Instead of building walls and making it the opposite, that we would have the hard center, but we'd have soft edges where there is some flexibility for interpretation and belief. Um, I don't know, that's just my illustration there. But, but the thing is, I don't think that when it comes to our interpretation of creation, we need to die on that hill. We don't need to die on the hill of how or when or what that actually means. Um, but we can still recognize that the story of creation has launched into a lot of debate over the course of history. I think, though, 
I have a theory here. I think it all boils down to the question of dinosaurs. I think we all really want to know, where are the dinosaurs? Where are the dinosaurs? What is your favorite dinosaur, by the way? I'm going to forget some of these names. Do anybody know what this guy is? That's a bron. Okay, thank you. Brontosaurus. No, no. Anybody? I don't know. What, what is this thing? We, have, we need some, like, like five-year-olds here. Right? They're all gone. <laughs> They're all in children's church. If I know, somebody Google that guy. I don't know his name. Yeah, let me find the Stegosaurus. He's one of my, the Stegosaurus is actually one of my favorites. Um, I don't do I, I don't have one. Ah, no, who's that guy? This guy, you know. Ah, T-Rex, right? We have T-Rex. We have the Triceratops, right? One, two, three, I think. And there's like different names for these things now because I started to look them up and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been out of dinosaur land for a long time. Um, anybody know this guy? I don't know. Yeah. I was like, what? You know. Um, and then this is the <sighs> Velociraptor, right? You like, yeah, you like the, the shows. That's good. Oh, that's, <laughs> he's pointing fingers at people. Do not call people dinosaurs. But, um, but the thing is, I think we all really want to know where are the dinosaurs, right? Where are the dinosaurs? Um, but still, the, the thing is, the creation story which we're going to look at today, is really more nuanced and detailed than many of us know. It, it, many of us have not explored into depth um, or have spent the time it really deserves. Some of us have just taken kind of face value quite literally. Or even realized, do you even know, have you realized that there are actually two creation stories in Scripture? Oh, Genesis 1 and 2. They're actually two different stories, and they tell the story very, very differently. So what is actually true, right? So today we're going to unpack some things about this. And, and once again, I don't mean this to be like a challenge to faith, but we're going to kind of like unpack the, the reasoning behind that. Um, but the thing is, where is the creation for story found? Well, it takes place in the first chapter of Genesis, um, 31 verses to be exact. In the first story, 31 verses, and then three verses in the second chapter. And then there's the second story that picks up after that. They're kind of piggyback, sandwiched together, put together. Um, so we're going to start with the very beginning. And why? Well, I think it was said once, the beginning is a very good place to start. So um, Genesis 1, very first words that we have in the Bible. This is in the... Um, the New International Version, by the way, you might have different translations of the Bible, but this is New NIV. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. <laughs> and so God made the vault and separated water until, into the vault from the water above it. And so, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let, the, let dry ground appear. And it was so God called the dry ground, land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw it was good. 
So we're going to pause there because Scripture continues to describe what happens next in the next days and, and what was created. And, and we'll come back to some of those things in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, but as far as the interpretation of the Scripture goes, on, on one hand, there's kind of like two, you might say, polarized, extreme interpretations. Um, well, first, we talked several weeks ago about how we should take the Bible seriously, not necessarily literally, in many ways, but seriously. And some, some people determine that seriously means that it's a clear, exact account and timeline of creation. That an exact six-day creation series. But then on the other hand, we have people you know, that science, see that science and evolution threatens that narrative and therefore see that as wrong and even, even dangerous in a way. And they see evidence of evolution and therefore throw out the creation story as a whole completely or just dismiss it as a naive or fictional myth that has nothing to do with us today. And they wind up throwing out the Bible sometimes with it, throwing out God alongside. But the thing is, when we approach Scripture, and even the story, when we approach Scripture from either of these extreme places, we wind up selling it short or missing out. Yeah, we, we can't be afraid to look too deeply. That, that, that might, exploring more, unpacking more, seeing what other people might have said, um, that that might shatter faith. Sometimes we're afraid of that. There's this deconstruction movement that's like been happening now, people like throwing away their faith because they see different interpretations. But we can't be afraid of that because, you know, God transcends that. But we also, on the other hand, we can't dismiss it either. We can't dismiss it, that there may be some great insight that's provided by unpacking that. So I want to propose to you today that there is truth in both. There is truth in both. And so to illustrate, I made up a joke. I'm very proud of this joke, by the way. I've shared it with Becca and Olivia, my staff. And um, okay, ready for my joke? <clears throat> okay, ready. A chemist, a mathematician, and a hipster, and... A Nazarene pastor walk into a bar. The bartender says, friends, what will you have? The chemist says, I'll have a C2H5OH. The mathematician says, the 5.25% for me. The hipster says, the dark ale guy. And the pastor says, excuse me, I think I'm in the wrong joke. <laughs> anyway. So, wasn't that good? Did you like that? I'm very, very proud of that. that. But, but just relating to that, though, right? These people, once again, I'm not promoting that you go into a bar and you're ordering alcohol. Like that, that's not the purpose of this. But, but basically, you're walking, like, you have these different people that are addressing the same thing in different ways, different approach. Once again, those of you that maybe come from a chemistry background, the chemistry, C2H5OH is the um, chemical description of alcohol. Um, but then we have the mathematician that's approaching it from a numerical standpoint. He's doing a percent, right? And then you have the hipster that's just kind of like describing it, kind of, it is what it is type thing. And the pastor just leaves. But, um, but that's the thing. What if, what if everyone is really trying to speak about the same thing, but just differently, in different perspectives, addressing different things about it? What if science and faith, to draw the parallel, what if science and faith actually complement each other but just answer different questions. Science asks how and what, and the Bible asks who and why. 
Science asks how and what, descriptive of our world as we learn more and more things. And the Bible really points to the who and the why. It's asking the right question here. So, and what, so what, if, what if when we look at the creation stories, what if they're less about how and really more intended about the who? Less about the absolute how, the descriptive, and more about the who behind the story. And we actually see that in other historical writings as really being the intent behind it. See, Genesis 1 and 2 are arranged more topically than they are actually sequentially, did you know? And they seem to be getting at a truth that isn't necessarily like word for word, detail, literal, but is no less true. And for some of us, that's really a hard thing to embrace. Um, well, just to, to help with this, several weeks ago, I gave you five tools. We called them the hermeneutics. We kind of made fun of that word. The five tools when we look at a difficult scripture, what to do. And we're going to walk through these today. And first, just to refresh your memory, or if this is your first time with us, look at the context of the passage. Every scripture has a place and a time written around it or where it's found in the Bible. The historical or social situation. What was going on at the time that this was written? Who was it originally written for? But then also look at through history too. How have others before us interpreted? There's a tradition element that goes in there, but then there's also specific literary style and intent. The Bible has lots of different pieces in it, ranging from narrative to letters and epistles to this thing called apocalyptic. We talked about this in our Bible class. It's kind of like the sci-fi of the ancient world. So there's lots of symbolism and whatnot. Um, and, and so besides the specific literary style intent, there's also common sense too, like to use our brain. We don't check our brain at the door. God gave us a brain for the reason. But then the last piece that likely, likely it's also addressed other places in the Bible, and so we should look for that consistency in Scripture. So how do these tools help us when considering Genesis 1 to 2? So my buddy here, T-Rex, is going to help us out. So, okay, so first of all, context. So Genesis is the beginning. And did you know that's exactly what the word Genesis means, the genesis of something, the beginning. That's why it's named that. But in the original Hebrew, that was what the language was that it was written in. What's interesting is there's no definite article. Maybe you remember from school, definite article like the is in our language. You know, you have in, in German, der, die, das. I don't know what you have in Spanish, but you have like multiple words for the. Um, but there's no definite article in the Hebrew. So, so really, the beginning of this scripture is not really saying the beginning. It's actually saying a beginning. Beginning, in beginning. But also there's no punctuation too. Wouldn't that drive some of us crazy, right? No punctuation in Hebrew or in, the, or in Greek. Um, and so some scholars actually believe the first sentence is meant to say, in beginning, God, period. In beginning, God. Who is this about? What is this meant to address? This is a story of God. Less about the actual activity. This is a story about who this God is. See, the Bible is one large story about what God is doing in the world. Genesis, this beginning, is answering who? Who's behind all this? Who is, who is doing this? And the position at the beginning really provides a framework for the rest of the story, the entire rest of the scripture, and God's intent behind it. God's intent behind it. And so Genesis, we have to recognize, is also the beginning of the story of the Israelites as a people, 
as a people, right? I just screeched. But as a people, right? The Israelites, it gave them their identity. Once again, going back, Genesis answers who? Who God? We are this God's people. We are this God's people. And, and it's hard, it's a struggle for us to see sometimes with 21 first century eyes, especially Western eyes, that, that to see people's limitations in their knowledge of the world at the time, you know, they didn't have the scientific perspective. And so they wrote it in a language and in words and descriptions that people would have understood at the time. It would have made no sense to provide theories that took place uh, several thousand years later. It would have made absolutely no sense. But then the second thing, so that's kind of the context here, but then going into the historical context, it's interesting to point out that when you look at history and how the, the creation stories have been interpreted over time, if you go back, uh, you know, some of us think that like Darwin's theory of evolution um, rocked the foundations of the Christian faith. That's actually not true, by the way. See, we go all the way back to the 200s. We have a guy named Origen who talked about how the, the scripture is a story of God. It doesn't really matter whether it was six days or however long creation took. We have this other guy you may have heard of, Augustine, or Augustine, in the 400s. He also looked at the scripture and said, oh, he's falling down. Um, he also looked at the scripture and said, yeah, once again, this, this may or may not provide an actually detailed historic amount. This is the 400s, by the way. Just like, you know, 350 years after Jesus. Um, then we have Thomas Aquinas. He also went along those same lines. And would you believe it or not, John Wesley, the roots of our tradition, he interpreted the scripture and said, no, this is revealing the mysterious nature of this personal God that we can know personally. So that's kind of the history behind that. But, but then also, we have to see maybe when this was written in the first place, mentally we have to put ourselves in the sandals of those living thousands of years ago. So can you do that? You know, I say, walk in their shoes. No, walk in their sandals. They didn't have like, you know, high tops and that kind of thing. So, so mentally, let's just, let's just go there. Put ourselves in the sandals of those living thousands of years ago. When you would have heard this story, you would have heard it as one of many creation stories at that time. There were lots of them. In the ancient Near East, you can go and you can Google and you can find lots and lots of stories about how the world came to be. But even more specifically, you'd see about these stories of other gods and their description. And you would see, when you would hear the story of Genesis, you'd be shocked by the uniqueness of Genesis compared to these other stories. See, these other stories, most of them feature crazy relationships of human-like gods and goddesses, and their stormy love affairs, their bloody battles for supremacy, and creating human beings as kind of like their projects to pick on and destroy. That was the story that was communicated by all these stories. And, and one of them, this is, this is one of my, well, favorites, it's kind of gory, but um, this one of this god named Marduk, this is a picture, um, Marduk, the way that he created the world was that he slayed his own great-grandmother, Tiamat, and then he hacked apart her corpse to form the sky, the earth, and the sea. And that's something you would want to paint on your child's wall, right? Great mural right there. But that was their, their story. But in contrast, the Genesis account, while it's kind of sparse in detail, it's yet profound, and it tells the story of one infinite, supreme God, a personal God, who simply creates by speaking. The power of the word, once again, we see later Jesus become, the word become flesh, speaks creation into existence, 
No blood, no violence, no battles. That's not the nature of this God. But not only that, is that you would have also heard this story. You would have recognized that this story reveals what people thought were gods or actually created things. See, people had thought in other religions that, you know, the, the tree is a god and there's a god of the sky and there's a god of war and there's a god of this and that. And the Genesis story actually reveals those are just things that our God created. They're just things. The sun and the moon are not deities. They're just addressed in Genesis 1.16, the greater light and the lesser light. The sea beast that everyone thought was this evil monster that, that, that ruled was just an animal of the sea in Genesis 1.21. Basically, the story's proclaiming the supremacy of this God, the character of God, by basically negating the dominant mythology of the ancient Near East. A totally different description of this one true God. And so the, the, all these gods that people thought existed, they're basically just objects. They're things that people would worship, but they were things created by our one true creator. That's what the story's pointing to. But you'd also look at deeper into the story, and, and you might be surprised that Genesis does not attempt to answer the story of where God came from. Where did God come from? Maybe one of your kids has asked that question before. See, ancient creation stories, all of the others always included the origin story of the God themselves. But from the very first sentence of Genesis, we see the eternal reality that God has always existed. Very different. There's water present, by the way, and there's the spirit that blows across the water. Water equals birth, you know, the birth in our existence. Where do we come from? That's not the point the point is that the pattern through the Bible is showing that God simply does not answer first every question that humans have, but that God is this one true creator God who is personal that we can know and created on purpose. But that brings us to a really important point. Then what is the literary style and intent? What kind of writing are these, these descriptions of the creation accounts? Um, you see that at the end of that scripture, there was evening and there was morning, right? That repeats over and over. There was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. When you read that, isn't there like a rhythm to it? A rhythm, there's a pattern. You can sing it almost. You can make it into a, a, into a song. It's almost lyrical. It's kind of the rhythms of the created world, the heartbeat of humanity. And when you read it in the entirety, it reads like poetry. And that's actually what it was. In the Hebrew, it's Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, by the way. It uses parallels. It uses rhythms. It uses stories. Uh, I like to write poems, too, if you didn't know. I write a poem every Wednesday called Haiku Wednesday. And my haikus, I believe, are true. <laughs> they, they might not be detail-oriented. Here, we have an example if you want to throw that up there, Hayden. So, like sugar sprinkles, the yellow dust coats the land, sneezing into spring. If you have allergies, you know exactly, right? Right? But, but the point of that is, is that it's in a rhythm. It's in a pattern. There's syllables. There's context. And the Genesis accounts of creation are written in that way. They're written in lyrical poetry. And I dare say, so that people can hear, remember, and feel God. That this is a, a God who is not far away, but it's here and present and among us. 
a God of order, of intention and purpose, a description of who he is. And sometimes, you know, those of us that, that might struggle, well, how can it not be a history account and that kind of thing? You know, how, uh, I think we have to ask ourselves a question, are we limiting God by saying God cannot speak through poetry or that God cannot communicate through poetry? You know, that's very self-righteous of us to say, okay, well, God can only speak to us and only reveal truth if it's a literal, actual, detail-oriented account of something that happened. I believe in a God who can speak through poetry and a God who can tell more about himself and reveal himself to us through any kind of writing, right? But then there's that common sense that comes in. Then, then we have to ask the question, then what, what does this point to? What it points to is a God who takes the chaotic and puts form and order to it. And whether evolution is involved or not, that's not the point of this. It's about the character of God taking chaotic and putting form and order. The purpose is to let us know the who. Let science explore the how and the what. One of my professors in seminary uh, said something that has stood out to me over the years, and that is the best question to ask of Scripture is, what does this tell us about God and about us? regardless of when it was written or how it was written or, or whatever that says. And the creation story promotes what was essential to the early people, but is also essential to us. First, that God creates order out of chaos and light out of darkness. And that's literally, but also figuratively. You know, you know this. In the darkest times of your life, you know, when you felt so alone, uh, there was possibly a time that God revealed himself to you in that darkness, Maybe through a person, maybe through a time of prayer, maybe through reading scripture, but that God creates light out of darkness. He can take something so evil and so dark and he can bring something good out of it. It doesn't mean he caused the darkness, but that he can create out of it. God creates, he created a world that has purpose, that makes sense, that's inhabitable, that, that human beings are created in God's image. It doesn't mean he looks like us exactly. You know, God doesn't have, have features but that we are meant to reflect him, you know? That we are meant to reflect him, that God creates, but also that God creates something new each day. And we see that, that first, darkness and light. Creates sky and the water dome. Creates land and seas and plants. The stars, the moon, the sun. Then the fifth day, it's sea animals and birds. You gotta love the fish, right? The land animals and human beings. And then on the seventh day, what did God do? rested, setting a pattern for his creation to rest, to live out. But he creates things empty and then fills them. And that's the patterns that we see. The first, the first few of the parts of the creation are empty things, you know, darkness and light, sky and water dome. And what does God do? He fills them. He fills them. God, all that God loves, he fills them. He created them good and intended that, that they would exist in that way. But if we look at the rest of Scripture, we also see that too. You ask, well, what does the rest of Scripture say? We see we worship a God who brings order out of chaos. It goes from the Israelites, right? The Israelites, they're in their exodus. 
They, they, they move out and they're looking around for this promised land and eventually they enter into it, but then they mess up and they disobey God, but then God offers them grace again and then they mess up and then there's judges that are sent to help them and they still mess up and God offers grace and then they do a little bit better and then God follows their, their desires and then gives them a king and they mess up again, right? It's all this order out of chaos, order out of chaos coming to Jesus. Jesus, once and for all, taking chaos and bringing order. And we see that Paul even echoes this in his letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. And scripture, scripture even goes on to say that when Jesus died, there was darkness and chaos that descended on the earth. That there was a great rumble of thunder, but then even through that situation, God takes the cross and turns it to victory and joy, taking chaos and bringing order out of it. This is the story that we live into and that we can own. And hear this, that whatever chaos or pain that you might be in, there is a God who shows in his pattern of the world that he addresses chaos and can bring order and peace from it. And he can bring that to each and every one of us, all of us. And you and I know the world is crazier every day, right? But we can acknowledge that's not how God designed it. We can look to that story and see that way. But God can, does promise that he is working to create order. And that's where we also learn from this scripture, but also others, that God is good and creation is good. God is good. Creation is good. We were created good. That, that we learn from an early age, of course, that when something's repeated, you should pay attention your mom calls your name three times, you better come, right? <laughs> you better come running. Well, when things are repeated, good, the creation story uses good seven times. You know, verse 31, God saw all he had made. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. See, God's original design for the world and for people is good. And not because of us, but because of who? Because of God. It's good because of him, not our goodness. It's because of him and what he's done for us. And the end of the Bible, we see the story wraps up in Revelation where God is working to do what? To make things good again. He promises us that too, that this is not it. And, and it's important to note that this is not the narrative of other religions and cultures. This is countercultural here. This is something that stands out. And Jesus lived this out. And I think one of the most hopeful aspects of the faith is that God sees us as created for goodness in his image, but he's promised he will get us back there. So what about the dinosaurs, right? I just say, relax, relax. The story does not tell us how or when, but I don't think it's designed to. I think it's a different question to ask. That when we run up against passages that don't make sense to us, it's important to reframe the question, to ask, what does this teach us about God and about us? And I think God is good. The world and us were created intentionally. Maybe it was six days, maybe you hold on to that, or maybe it was six billion years. But God creates order out of chaos and is working again to make that our reality. And let me say this, that the Bible and science are not enemies they answer different questions. 
And I think the church can take a different approach where we can celebrate science. We can't feel, don't necessarily have to feel threatened by it because science is, is a means for seeing and embracing the glory of God. I saw that in my work when I was out on the boat in Chesapeake Bay taking water samples when it was like 100 degrees outside. You know, I might not have joined the temperature, but I remember looking around at creation and seeing the creation reflecting God to me. And maybe you've experienced that in, in the glory of going on a hike or seeing a sunset, that God's, God is reflecting so much amazing power right there. But the challenge is also to those who embrace science alone, to recognize that the reality of the world is much larger than what can be measured scientifically, meaning that love, beauty, personhood, our consciousness, those are things that science cannot address, but more specifically, the reason why. And I think we're also, it's also important to note that we're called into God's work, into his creative work. That you're a part of the story. You're invited into the story of creation that you are called to create. God invites us into the creative work to bring order and peace and love. But also that creativity in you, whether it's music or the arts or pottery or, or whatever that may be, those creative expressions, that you can claim that as a reflection of God. That we're called to create, to create friendships, to create families, to create buildings and structures, to create, there's that something inside of us in different ways to reflect God's creativity. I believe that's rooted because of God. But also to invite others to know that they were created good too on purpose. And even if they're broken, we're broken right now, we can trust that God isn't finished. So, where are the dinosaurs? I don't think that's the best question. <laughs> I think the best question and the answer is to look to a God who creates on purpose and for purpose.